0: Profiles in Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right, hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. Uh, still episode 21, but part three of episode 21, The Endless Wars. This time focusing on uh, ISIS, what uh, uh, what our veterans here know as uh, Operation Inherent Resolve or the, uh, but the whole regional conflict of, uh, of ISIS in Syria and Iraq uh, from about 2014 uh, on. So um, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, fellow professor colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College. First, we have Colonel Pat McCarthy, Ph.D. Welcome, Pat.
1: John, uh, fellow colleagues, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this relatively important uh, case study, and I look forward to the discussions that we're going to have today. Outstanding.
0: Next, we have Lieutenant Colonel Mike Shaw, Ph.D. Welcome, Mike. John, thanks for having me. And last, but certainly not least, we have Barak Kadajan. Dr. Dr. Barak Kadajan. Did I pronounce that right? Proper Turkish? That's, oh,
2: so that's very, very close. Better than the <laughs> Khadar Khan. So, you know, always, as always, John, good to be here. Good to be, you know, having this with you. Awesome. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, my pleasure. Okay. So, and again, as in keeping with the, with the endless war case studies, slightly different format than our previous podcast on profiles and strategy. We have our we're making use of our military uh, military professors here in the strategy policy department who are veterans of this conflict. So uh, the three of us um, uh, active duty officers have time on the ground or in the air uh, over uh, Operation Inherent Resolve in the defeat ISIS mission. And if we could just to set the stage, we'll we'll go ahead and um, just kind of uh, um, say you know, where and when served, and and Pat, we'll start with you.
1: So a little bit out of order, right, because uh, we did some some pre-gaming and some discussions, right, but I served in, um, you know, in support of Operation Inherent Resolve, uh, in support of a Soxent element, uh, both Soxent and CGI of Syria, from uh, 15 to 16, 2015 to 16, right, Uh, but I'm really excited about this panel because it's almost cumulative with regards to like uh, Michael was there before I was, then I was there, then, then you were there. And then, and then Barack could wrap us up into kind of like a, you know, a a really uh, academic uh, overview. So um, yes. Um, Both, both, uh, you know, I I have been on the ground inside Syria Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we, we could tease out like, how, how I was helping out uh, the overall effort.
0: Awesome, thank you. And, and Pat, just for our listeners on uh, uh, other platforms here, SOC, sent Special Operations Com- Central Command.
1: That is correct, right? And at that time, um, uh, Major General uh, Nagata was the uh, Special Operations Command Central Commander, and also dual-hatted as the Combined Joint Interagency Task Force, SYRIA, commander under the auspices of central command right so maybe we could tease out if need be the organizational aspects of how the pursuit against ISIS or ISIL um, Mm. unfolded uh, you know as we shifted in theaters thanks
0: awesome thank you
3: Mike go ahead yeah, so my experience was actually pre-OIR we were I was there in Kuwait uh in support of uh training operations sustainment operations and we were activated and moved north in july of 2014 uh as uh they the uh, powers that be thought that potentially baghdad and the embassy would fall and so we were an attack aviation uh battalion and uh an element of us uh headquarters minus plus a company of uh apache aviation went forward to provide security, along with uh, the other crisis elements from special operations uh, teams in the area, to move into Baghdad in order to possibly support and/or protect and/or evacuate as necessary, as OIR um, was being born. So, as uh, ISIS or ISIL um, developed itself and was moving through at a rapid pace inside Iraq, uh, we were forward at Baghdad at that point. We remained till December. And uh, from there, OIR was born. So I was kind of boots on the ground pre-establishment uh, of moniker. And when uh, Arsent, the uh, Army Army Command uh, Army Central Command, uh, was in command with uh, two-star General Petard.
0: Uh, mm, interesting. And so I'll, I'll I'll cap that off in in terms of chronologically. So I was there from the summer of uh, 17 to the summer of 18. Uh, and at the time, OIR had formally been established and the the core headquarters uh, uh combined joint task force uh first the 18th airborne Corps, then three core uh augmented by international partners other service uh members so that's why I combined joint i was the um i think the actual term was chief of fires joint chief of our joint fires chief but in effect i was the um current operations fires day-to-day basis and strike director for uh the core shaping area uh, doing kinetic strikes on ISIS uh so anyway Barack we'll, we'll go to you as our uh, well anything
2: anything I will say after you guys will be embarrassing on my part so why why don't I go to the extremes my probably only theater experience is limited to playing Fortnite with my now 13 year old son for a while so that is probably the most risk that I take on the actual battlefield so appreciate you guys for doing that for your service and thank you for your service in that, in that sense, when it comes to the region, uh, so I spent about like 27-ish years in Turkey. So I'm sort of from the region, at least from the greater Middle East or whatever you call that part of the world. In terms of uh, academic specialty, I'm a political scientist by training. And in terms of regional specialty, I think I would just do best with the Levant, greatly defined Turkey, Syria, Iraq, of Iran, and broader and region. And my personal experience with this case or with this topic, like ISIS, is in fact the story of my time in Naval War College in the Strategy and Policy Department. I arrived here in summer of 2014, exactly when ISIS just blew up. And I was tasked with delivering a lecture on ISIS. My first lecture on ISIS was in February, 2015. My first lecture ever in the Strategy and Policy Department. So in a way, for next five years, studying trying to understand ISIS became my thing both academically and professionally so I felt the need that I should do something about it maybe the only thing I can do since I can't do anything I'm useless on the battlefield on theater but the thing I can do was to try to understand them as far as I could given my background not only academically but given my familiarity with the concepts of the region and again what I've done pales in comparison to what you guys mentioned but in a way, it was very personal on my end because came here, tasked with this, that became my life, and I did my best to, you know, convey whatever thoughts or analysis that I had at the time. I spoke to Marine Raider Regiment in North Carolina. I went to places like Special Operations School in Florida for Air Force, National Guard, what have you, other places. But again, compared to what you guys did, you know, how we served anything i say just not does not even pale in comparison
0: well thank you you for your service yeah no let me tell you so um uh the intel brief that i got when i walked into theater about all the different um problems internationally with the turks and the kurds and the, the you know different shades of syrians and iraqis You nailed that in your lecture for uh, for this one. The first time I saw it, I was like, "Wow, that's uh, you know he got this from open source, and uh, (laughs) you know he's obviously got did some good uh, good digging." So hopefully we can get into some of that stuff. But um, so I want to put this for our first question. Put this uh, entire portion of the case in the in the context, or this part of the case in the context of the overall case. War on terror, as we talked about in our Afghanistan portion, we open we, you know, open the opening salvos of the war on terror. We decide to go in and get Osama bin Laden into Afghanistan, and ostensibly that's our primary theater. And as we talked about, resounding success in terms of the initial political aims of go into Afghanistan, uh, topple the Taliban. We didn't find Osama bin Laden, but okay. So, but then. A year or so later, we decide to open up a peripheral theater or a secondary theater, as we say in the lexicon of the course, in Iraq. And, you know, whether or not, as Clausewitz says, that was truly exceptionally rewarding and we had the, the resources and the, it was worth the reward and risk to do so. That's, you know, um, uh, an open question, right? That happens. Our emphasis on Afghanistan goes down. Taliban resurges in, the, in this intervening decade. Stuff's happening in Iraq. We, we, we create a lot of jihadis. Um, by 2008, new administration is coming into office, so strategic reassessment happens. We decide to go back to Afghanistan and surge there and then basically draw down all of our forces in Iraq, which one could say creates a power vacuum. Some of the same jihadis that we had fought in Iraq and from the 2003 on or 2004 on timeframe now become the lead um, actors, if you will, in the Syrian civil war. And as we're dealing with Afghanistan from say 20, um, 2009 onto on to 2013, Syria falls into a civil war. From that, ISIS is born and they end up taking over half of Syria and half Iraq, almost getting to the point of of um, of taking over Baghdad. So the question part of this is: Did we did we create the problem we're talking about now in in terms of ISIS? Um, and Pat, why don't we start it with you?
1: So John, you ask a very very in depth question, and um, there's like a a potential academic or at least examination challenge here, right? We want to delineate into neat little packages that, you know, ISIS was created following operation Iraqi freedom or um, the name is actually escaping me, right? Uh, New Dawn, operation, New Dawn uh, as we transitioned and left Iraq. Right. But, you know, in, in the scope of uh, examining this in a uh, comparative case study approach, you know, uh, we need to probably look at the formation of ISIS or ISIL uh, almost um, in retrospect to like World War I, the interwar period and World War II, right? Is this actually multiple different campaigns from the enemy's perspective? Or is this all interrelated, right? You can trace back, you know, and there are scholarly articles and numerous books and articles. You can trace back the formation of ISIS and ISIL to 2004 and also bring out aspects of the true global war on terror, right? Zarqawi, um, an Al-Qaeda affiliate, uh, began the application of radical Islamic violence to advance a a, a political and religious agenda Mm -hmm. um, that led to numerous disparate um, Islamic radical violent groups that uh, completely transcended, transcended the entire environment, right? Did we create this? Some may say yes, some may say no, right? But definitely the battlefield in Iraq, you know, post-2003 created opportunities and a vacuum to rally people with political grievances and motivations to come in and fight a Western power. It's dangerous, I say dangerous, to um, attempt to, uh, distill this into three separate chapters of the global war on terror. All right, and and I, I look forward to the uh, debate and discourse from uh, you know our, our colleagues here.
0: Mm. Okay, good stuff. So, Mike, you were there in the days when um, ISIS almost overran Baghdad. Any uh, any thoughts on this one from from that perspective?
3: So, from the from the perspective of whether or not it's the U.S.'s fault, again, uh, you know, again to take a, a, a medium medium line. Answer. It's kind of as uh, Brock did at his, in his briefing this morning, his lecture. Right. It depends. Um, I think. Right. It, I mean, the U.S. The U.S. left Iraq uh, in the hands of the Iraqi government uh, with a trained military and police force in the capacity, you know, that uh, the best that we could at that point as we as we retrograded out upon departure that leaves a vacuum. Syria is in civil war right there you know the Assad regime is fighting amongst his own people for position and power and that itself is creating vacuums. Um, So there are people that uh, have benefited right through the U.S. forces and uh, and international forces being in the Levant area taking being able to target and practice and train and moving that kind of kinetic capability, people that have grievances either against the international system, against the U.S. deliberately, or against you know the local leadership, um, as we see with you know individual bombings within you know within either mosques, within markets, within you know just um, you know police stations, et cetera. Um, so I you know I guess to say it depends. I think the U.S. has some responsibility in the fact that we injected ourselves into the land, you know, into another area of the world. You know, we as an expeditionary force, we were there, which means upon departure, the, the environment has changed based on the footprint in the sand that we have left. And so to say that we had no responsibility in the creation or result of, you know, ISIS or ISIL being developed, I think would be um, inappropriate. But then also to, as depat said, right, to try to, to try to bifurcate it and poke in the chest and say, U.S., it's your fault you led to these instabilities and so if the u.s hadn't done x then y and z would have taken place i think is also inappropriate so i think there are you know as 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 the nation that is expeditionary in 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 nature and moves throughout the world um assisting and trying to as we've discussed in previous podcasts you know balance the moral or the hubris of the nation right when you are a hegemonic power um, where do you sit and what do you do um, I think there are repercussions, good and bad, that take place from that. So I think there is probably, there is responsibility in the U.S. for the development, but I wouldn't say that we necessarily, like, we didn't form, it's not the fault of the U.S. to say that it formed ISIS. Um, if that middles the ground enough to to placate.
2: Okay, fair enough. Barack, what's your sense on this one? So I think I totally agree with both Michael and Pat on this. And probably mirroring what Pat Referred to or talked about a little bit. I think when it comes to did United States create ISIS, I think the question can be reframed such that uh, did United States create the conditions for ISIS to flourish? I think in in that sense, my answer would be rather uh, qualified. Because when people think about ISIS, they think about ISIS as something that just was born, say in mid 2014. It was a time we started paying attention to ISIS, and in my Journey, an intellectual journey, and trying to figure out what was happening, what happened at the time. By 2014, even the Western media did not even perceive ISIS as a big threat. But mm-hmm. when they took over Mosul, declared the South in Caliphate, then it became became a problem for everyone. But it was a problem uh, that can be traced at least to 2004, 2003, 2004. Abu Musab al Zarqawi, who had a very very different Sort of understanding of Salafis, you know, in jihad than AQ Central. So then the question becomes: If we approach ISIS as something that just blew up after 2012, 13, 14, what have you, then I would say, not much could have been done in 2009, 2010. Maybe more oversight with respect to what Iraqi central government could have done or could shouldn't have done. But I think if you were trying to think about a certain point in time. Where United States made a mistake, with a capital M, and created some conditions that paved the way eventually for Iraq to serve as a magnet for solar fugitives. I think that would be the decision to, you know, debauchification to debauchify Iraq like this. I think that was the big, I think, mistake at the time because that opened a lot of gates for Iraqi politics and society, that created a massive destabilization enterprise in Iraq that just led to a lot of problems. Even then, even in 2013, many people would not be able to foresee what was coming next. But you have someone like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, a self-made jihadi entrepreneur, you unleash him in a... In a destabilized country like Iraq, and destabilized not in terms of politics, but in terms of sectarian differences, ethnic differences, what have you, religious differences, and then you unleash him, and then he unleashes himself, his group in Iraq. Then, fast forward in 2014, we have something like ISIS, that now we call ISIS, taking over Mosul, even almost laying siege on Baghdad or Baghdad, as I would call it. But I, I think 2009, 10, it's It was not necessarily that something U.S. did or not not to the extent because 2010-11, you have the Arab Spring, you have Syria just going down the tubes and there would not be much United States could have done to prevent that from happening. But in 2003, I think the momentous decision to go for radical debatification without thinking about what could possibly go wrong, I think opened the gates for stability and a self-made political. South made jihadi entrepreneur like Zarqawi was able to take advantage of that and the rest is history because as pat correctly identified when i think about isis we should at least go to 2004 or maybe the fall of 2004 when when finally uh, bin Laden agrees Zarqawi to be an affiliate of al-qaeda central because
3: yeah.
2: Zarqawi arrived in baghdad roughly around 2003 and um, Uh, like North Iraq, and he was not known of a figure at the time, and he wanted to be a part of Al-Qaeda. He even ended up in Afghanistan all before this, September 11. He wanted to meet Bin Laden. Bin Laden even didn't bother to meet him. Mm -hmm. But eventually, Zarqawi did a lot of very barbaric stuff in Baghdad, and even Al-Qaeda Central was compelled to accept him as an athlete. But I think that's the story of ISIS that mm-hmm. begins with Zarqawi, and we can trace that story at least to 2004, maybe even 2003, if you push it. So so maybe the way to kind
0: of like pull the thread on this, too, is um, what, the, the thing, the reason why I asked the question my I did, what jumps to my mind when I think about ISIS is uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the lower-level Iraqi thug in, you know, 2004 time frame, gets captured, put into, what was it, Camp Bukha, I think, and, you know, ostensibly he becomes radicalized there. And now all of a sudden, fast forward a decade and he proclaims himself the caliph of uh, <laughs> of, of ISIS. So I guess the question is, uh, and, and again, you know, Pat, we'll start this one with you. Did we do things to exacerbate and inflame? To, if, if we didn't cause ISIS, to, if, if we? Um, were there things we could have done better along the way to not uh, allow these conditions to to inflame.
1: So, John, this is a loaded question, right? Because <laughs> yes, right. We did capture Omar al-Baghdadi. Um, you know, two thousand four, two thousand timeframe. He was incarcerated under U.S. jurisdiction. Uh, there's multiple articles and books out there that talk about his radicalization. Do we know? I mean, you know, uh, al-Baghdadi's not with us anymore, so we can't ask him, like, when were you (laughs) radicalized, right? Um, But here's what I can tell you, or at least my perspective, right? Both as a practitioner and willing to explore and reflect uh, on this situation. Barack asks a very um, in-depth question. Did we create the conditions? Okay. Um, Possible. 110% possible. Right. And there's other literature and other studies out there that show radicalization, not only in the, the, the war on terror context, right? Like what is prison behavior and what opportunities, what audiences are presented. But I think that the important question for ourselves our policymakers and the students that we're teaching here at the U.S. Navy War College is, did we correctly understand the nature of the war that we were prosecuting in 2003 to include like all cultural aspects, political aims, political objectives, and military capabilities to solve those problems, right? Barack talks about an important aspect, which has been debated multiple times, right? What did debathification do? what did that lead to in iraq when we made that decision to invade did we create the opportunities Did we ignore the borders around Mm -hmm. uh iraq uh proper right like did we even forecast iran's involvement or the potential collapse of syria very complex case study that nobody really has the answers to john right but we all have at least a, a mechanism of exploration from both our, our, our experiences and our pursuit of trying to understand and distill what happened, why it happened, so on and so forth, right? So I, I I'll guess close so. there, but um, okay. you know, at the same time, like let's let's uh, chat about it if if that's what we'd like to do.
0: Well, I, I, I guess you could also uh, make the argument as um, hearkening uh, back to our interwar case study that the Sykes-Picot agreement and the drawing of, of lines uh, has exact because what is it at, at one point when ISIS uh, crossed the border and was taking over territory in Iraq? You know they got on one of their propaganda videos and said this marks the end of the Sykes-Picot Agreement that was that was fostered upon us you know hundreds of years ago, whatever you know back back in 1920. So so yeah, there's there's some historical historical sense there too in the in the region, but. Um,
1: and, and I would like to share, right, like while I'm no expert and maybe Barack has some different regional perspectives that I could never even appreciate just based on depth, experience, right, and, and heritage, right? I, I would even say that it it, it transcends the sykes Pico agreement uh, from the interwar period, you know, that the, the, we, were, we were engaged in a cultural battle from my perspective that transcended potentially millennia. You know, all all said and done, and um, that's why it's difficult to really distill the ISIS battle from Afghanistan or Iraq.
0: Are you saying this is an argument about secular Islam versus radical Islam in some ways?
1: Is that- uh, what what I'm saying, right, or at least like what what I would like to introduce for consideration, right, uh, is one of our course themes is uh, understanding the cultural dimensions of war, right? And uh, maybe even a historical appreciation, which leads to understanding the nature of the conflict, right? Um, And without jumping, you know, to, to previous discussions that we've had about the Iraq aspect of the global war on terror, right? There were aspects of an insurgency. There were aspects of a civil war. And just having personal experiences, uh, in the in this conflict, right? I mean, I did not understand until later on the true elements between the schism that was being fighted, you know, being fought between um, different elements inside Iraq. So this all leads into uh, an aspect of where was ISIL born? How was it born? What were their political objectives? What were their uh, military objectives? And what were they seeking to... Accomplished. Barack is absolutely right. For a while, right? They created a proto-state. I mean, they held a significant amount of uh, of territory. Yep. Now, we could talk about the military. You know, the, the 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 partnership, the alliances. We could talk about all of that. Um, you know, and that's important to, to understand how we enable partner forces, right? But. Mm-hmm. You know, let's see where this, let's see where this discussion goes, you know, all said and done. I'm I'm not afraid to to peel this back a little bit, my friend.
0: Fair enough. All right, Barack, why don't we jump to you on this one? (laughs) So, you know,
2: one thing I could say is uh, there's the, I think if you could jump it in time machine and go to like early 2000s, you know, two thousand three, two thousand four, five, six summers. onwards. I think there's a political element and there's the ideation or ideological element. By debatification, I was referring to more to the political element, and it's a metaphor I use in some of my lectures, but I think not for the senior course. So you can, in 2003, you can look at Iraq and you will see a problematic, say, political entity, right? Yeah, both party at the top, and lots of problems from within, and then you look at both party, and then you identify both party as a problem. The question then becomes, what kind of problem do you think bath party is? If you think bath party is like a virus, so bath party is the the virus and it makes all the rock sick. If you think that's the case, what you should be doing is kill the virus and the body will heal itself. And that was the path taken. But if we were to look more carefully and if we were to take the, context, contextual, the contextual details more seriously, what we would see would be the following. Bath party might be bad. It was, in fact, very bad, a killing machine. But bath party was not necessarily like a virus. Once you take the virus, the body will heal itself. Bath party was the problematic foundation of a problematic building, right? So if you think bath party is a virus, you kill the virus and the body will heal itself. But if bath party is, in fact, problematic foundation of, of a you know high rise you take out the foundation good or bad the entire building falls apart which i think was what actually happened so i think that's a poll that's about misunderstanding the political environment or political concept when it comes to the ideational side i think Pat is 100 right and you're also right about bringing the sax speaker element because if i have one specialty in the world it's the territory it's the concept of territory you know And I I could say, and I've just done a lot of research on this, the territorial ideas and practices of groups like ISIS, they are unique. So what makes groups like ISIS, or what made ISIS unique, was they did not oppose the borders in the region only. They opposed the idea of Westphalian borders. Mm Because they argue Westphalian borders, the the modern state system is first, artificial, Mm -hmm. second, it's a western construct mm. third it would not it should not fit the greater middle east right so when they were trying to you know destroy the image of sax pico they were not only trying to destroy the you know syrian rocky border they were signaling that they don't care about borders and the, and once we look back in history look at the historical caliphs from say 17th century 17th century, 7th century onwards they did not operate with borders, they did not operate within the Westphalian system. So what they were trying to accomplish was trying to create, if tempor- temporarily, the illusion that somewhere in the Middle East, we are now going back to the original territorial, political, social, religious order. So they they opposed everything, which in a way, and everyone, they did not get along with AQ Central, they did not get along with Taliban, they think They thought, maybe they still think, the Taliban is an inferior group. They're too nationalistic, too narrow-minded. But ISIS, in a a way, that's what made them popular in the eyes of Salafijitas across the globe. They were able to establish a state-like entity that directly opposed the Westphalian understanding of borders, the Westphalian understanding of modern state systems. So they were against... Everything that makes modern state system international relations, as we understand what it is, paradoxically, yes, they, that made them popular. But at the same time, they created incentives for local, regional, and global actors to hammer them down.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's that's good stuff. There's a couple of threads I want to pull in there, but first, Mike, any any thoughts on this one? You know, I I
3: don't have much more to add. Uh, the only the only addition that I would place is that. Um, I think this is this is more than just an ISIS dis- you know, an ISIL discussion right the 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 friction that we see here can be discussed and as we're doing this week as well right in the, India, Pakistan the, the case study we're looking at here anytime we look at you know we go from a colonization aspect in the you know 17 18 1900s um early 2000 right you have you have as colonization moves away and borders are established by more western powers right we we run into those issues of you know A line on the ground does not necessarily possibly separates an ethnic an ethnic group, and by doing so, right, you now have two separate national states that are one together ethnically but separately nationally, which then divides, you know, and not to mention religion, not to mention you know all the other stuff that gets involved in that. So um, I think this is more than just an an ISIL discussion. I think, but it's a great um, it's a great topic to be able to see it take place, especially as far as Barack's pointing out here to see. A group that uh, that doesn't acknowledge um, the current map as it sits and the state of play as it as it resonates and is willing to challenge that and and what does that mean, right? Because uh-huh. um, uh, that's an ongoing discussion. The West the West set up artificial borders throughout the world, um, and that those borders, you know, I mean, and that's that's an ongoing throughout an ongoing topic. So
0: so the the uh, and and yeah i mean I don't, I don't want to take this all the way back to the crusades but like you know that <laughs> kind of uh well i'll tell you what why don't we go back to the ottoman empire world war one case study all of the peoples in this region are living under one roof so to speak but then as soon as the ottoman empire falls and you have the sykes picot agreement and they draw lines on the map that separate kurdish populations across um uh, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, um, and, and, you know, now, um, to say nothing of, of, of ethnic Turkmens and, and, and uh, you know, yep. Iraqis and all the other ethnicities that are, that are going on there, but we then, because we see the threat in ISIS attempt to ally with, we need, you know, on the ground forces in the, in the region, indigenous forces as we would call them, so we choose the Syrian Kurds as our ally in in this, and yet they're uh, at war with, with the Syrian government. The Turkish government is at war with them, who are Turkish, our NATO ally, <laughs> and, um, and we're at the same time trying to back Iraq, keep them from falling. But there are, and you, you do a good job of, of kind of Delineating this down in, in your lecture, Barack, but there's everyone's got a gun pointed at, you know, uh, two separate ways here. Um, so to, to pull a question out of this, <laughs> out of this quagmire, <laughs> um, you know, unity of effort, unity of command, and we're we're backing, we're choosing allies that are enemies with our other allies. Uh, what is How what is the glue that it is? Is it just that ISIS is so terrible and so brutal uh, that we we end up kind of, you know, making some type of of agreement with even like the Russians and the Syrians to to defeat them first? Like, how are we? How is this? How is this going down just for for
2: everybody listening at
0: home? Why don't we? uh, Barack, let's start this with you.
2: Excellent question. And The lecture I deliver for the senior course for SLC uh, does not deal with the theater, but as John alluded to in other courses or or our intermediate course, I talk almost entirely about the actors in the region. So I think it's a good good opportunity because the students won't see my theater-based details or maybe chaotic, uh, say, description of the region. But the thing is, and, and also it's sort of not even a point, it's a tautology, Ontology, which is th- things are complicated. So but when we look at, say, if you jump in the time machine go to, say, summer, fall, in you know, winter of 2014, here is what things looked like from the perspective of Turkey, for example. So Turkey has been fighting Kurdish Workers Party since early 1980s, called the PKK, and the PKK also has affiliates in other countries too. So they have their bases in northern Iraq. And there's the PJAK in Iran or Iran, and there's the PYD or YPG, regardless of whatever you pick, in Syria, which is a more recent establishment. So when the Syrian civil war happened, what Turkish government did, and we can talk about why, but I don't want to take too much time. The Turkish government, President Erdogan and the government, decided that Turkey could end up as a kingmaker and democracy bringer if there is a word like that, in Syria. So they just openly backed those who opposed Assad. And they remain obsessed with toppling Assad and emerging as kingmakers in Syria roughly around 2016. So if we go back to 2014, from what I know, open sources, obviously, the United States thought of Turkey as the most natural ally to fight against ISIS. On the surface, it makes a lot of sense. Turkey, even to this day, remains... One of the most secular Muslim majority countries in the, you know, in the in the world, and ISIS ideology directly targets Turkey too. They don't like it's not like oh these are Muslims so ISIS sort of hates it and hates the kind of governments that Turkey had. So when United States asked for hey you know what why don't you know we go to you know Syria and take care of business when it comes to ISIS and Turkish military is rather experienced when it comes to fighting you know wars or limited conflicts in even rougher terrain like northern Iraq and decent nato members, a lot of you know, say capabilities including drones and you know air force but turkey at the time was obsessed with toppling assad and from what we know they made a turkish government made the counter offer hey i'll help you defeat isis but you help me topple assad which is something that isis did not want to do at the time so given that YPG or PYD, the Syrian Kurdish group, is affiliated with the y, you know, the PKK, Turkey's nemesis for almost like half a century. When the United States decided to go with YPG, the Syrian Kurdish Muslim groups in Syria, from a military perspective, it made perfect sense. Because the Syrian Kurds were becoming the main target for ISIS. So they were fighting for their lives. You cannot find more motivated people in that country to fight ISIS. And they were trying to connect their three uh, discontinuous, uncontiguous, non-contiguous territories and cantons in northern Syria. So they have all the, all the motivation and they proved themselves to be competent uh, fighters on the ground. So from a military perspective, it made perfect sense. But from a political perspective, that move to fight ISIS through YPG or PYD created a political firestorm between Turkey and the United States. Even to this day, I mean, when I I left Turkey 20 years ago, I would say Turkey, most Turkish people did not necessarily like the United States. There was some anti-Americanism there. But right now, after 2014, 2015, to this day, anti-Americanism in Turkey, Mm -hmm. off the roof. And this was also reflected in the government's position too. So I think there's a what I'm trying to say is there's a trade-off between military efficiency and political, you know, efficiency or political consequences, military consequences. So, in a way, maybe the United States did not have much of a good option other than supporting YPG to defeat ISIS, but it was bound to come with the consequence of Turkish and American relations going very bad. I mean... The PKK YPG Syria issue, and since I get lots of questions from the press or from other places from, you know, State Department what have you, I I say the same thing every single time. Turkey and United States have lots of problems. Almost all of them can be solved through some kind of negotiation, other than the you know, YPG or Syrian Kurdish militant group problem. That is not going away, and that is only getting worse from the Turkish side. Okay,
1: Pat, go ahead. So, Barack, right, you know, uh, in in the spirit of scholarly debate, right, and I appreciate your perspective. Did the ISIS fight bring to the forefront of American appreciation the role of non-state actors as potentially uh, creating challenges, you know, for the application of military power, something that Turkey has dealt with, like you said, since 19, you know, 1980, uh, the PKK political parties that apply political violence to achieve objectives, right? 2014, ISIS just poof, emerged, right? We, we could all agree that, okay, there, there was a path to ISIS being born, being formed, so on and so forth. But all of a sudden, political vacuums, lack of security created an opportunity for isis to come out that created the environment for the military application of power to solve a political problem you know both in syria on the turkish border inside iraq a partner um and then we could also talk about if you if you wanted to discuss right like the effectiveness of the use of military power Uh, to to help, right? Both from a proxy force inside Syria, doesn't really matter. You know, we we could choose a partner that was choose, but also from a nation, uh, you know, Iraq, about the retake of Mosul or the pushback of of, of ISIL, you know, which is still, you know, some would say they're still there. How effective they are, I don't know. But I just wanted to throw that to you as a question as a as a uh, exploration aspect what do you think so now in simple terms the qu- can you summarize the question very briefly so that is not a skill of mine right i uh, you give me the microphone and i will talk <laughs> um summarizing the question did the formation of isis or ISIL create an appreciation for the united states of similar political and military problems that Turkey has experienced over the past 25, 30 years in regards to non-state actors challenging the status quo. Does that
2: help? It helps, so thank you for it. So, you know, it's difficult for me to answer if you're, if you're alluding to like the regional perspective. But I can most certainly talk about a Turkish perspective, so there's not much of an appreciation for United States defeating ISIS through YPG. In fact, the, the discourse in Turkey has reached to the level that educated or uneducated, if I were to pick some random Turkish citizens from Turkey and ask them the same question, most of them would say the following, I keep you not. Well, United States used ISIS issue to help YPGPY2 establish a state-like entity in Northern, Europe, Northern Syria. That's what people believe. So I think in, in a way that, that I would say follows from a big mistake on the part of Turkish government as of 2010-11 onwards. And I might be one of the more most or more vocal critiques of uh, the Turkish government in the English-speaking world. I wrote extensively on this. To the extent that I got some attention from the Turkish government. But Turkey made two big mistakes when it comes to misassessment and underestimation of ISIS, which is there's not much, which is why probably there's not much appreciation on the Turkish side. First, the Turkish government underassessed or underestimated what ISIS was. The, Tur- the, the Turkish Minister of Foreign Affairs, and then eventually Prime Minister at the time, when ISIS was freaking out the Western world. He called them a bunch of angry Sunni kids. Mm. I'm like, that's not what they are. And he, and the Turkish government also underestimated the panic that ISIS created in the Western world Mm. because they were obsessed with the task of toppling Assad. I mean, it's difficult to explain right now, but that's where they were going. So they just, they just did not pay attention to ISIS and how the West saw ISIS and fast forward from the Turkish side. And I can't say for everyone, but from my observations, a lot of people ignore that episode, ignore the fact that Turkey for about like five, six years was obsessed with toppling Assad. They only focus on the United States helping or supporting YPG. So from their perspective, there's not much to appreciate. From their perspective, it could be a conspiracy against Turkey, you know, carried out by the United States. I know these may sound too conspirational, but that is the state of the nature and the discourses and debates in Turkey about United States' involvement in the region.
0: But you know what though, Barack, that actually rhymes with what's going on in the United States at the time, because I remember vividly the lack of political will Heck, Barack Obama comes out and says, oh, ISIS is the JV team. They're nothing to worry about. And then the next day they, you know, take Raqqa and, and Mosul, right? So, you know, was there, I guess that to pull a question on that, the, the lack of political will or the lack to take the threat seriously, at least in the initial days, uh, you know, help contributes to them almost running, uh, running over Baghdad. Um, Mike, let's. Uh, no, sorry, we skipped you for the last question. Let's start this one with you. But you know, because you were there during those days when they almost ISIS almost took Baghdad, our our ostensible allies' uh, uh, capital.
3: Right. Um, you know, uh, from my from my perspective, again, it was it was an interesting. Uh, you know, my my time there during that six months of establishment kind of goes to the course theme when we talk about uh, the institution, right? Um, because there was very much sitting in our scent, right? The decision. You know, the the conversation sat around with, okay, if we need to evacuate people, we need to get heavy lift. And Air Force can't necessarily land with security, so maybe we need to send up Chinooks from Kuwait and somehow do that. Um, And then it turned into, well, Chinooks and Blackhawks. Or maybe if we get filled in a part, we could ground convoy up fuel and set up fuel establishments, uh, you know, forward air refueling locations for to be able to hop back and forth and be able to get people in and out of the country, ground convoy to a point X. To the final decision of, we don't really know what's going to happen. We'll, you know, there's already special forces on the ground to exfil American Americans as needed if we need to. But we need we need attack support because if this goes ugly, it's going to go ugly quick. And we need firepower up north. And hence the H sixty four, you know, and hence the activation of that and moving them along with some medevac up, um, you know, for um, for survivability. Um, but the, the, again, back to the inst- institutional domain, everyone still had Iraq of New Dawn in their head. Everyone said, still had Iraq of, you know, multiple, multiple brigades, multiple divisions, mul- you know, I mean, everyone still had the, you know, kind of, as, as Pat has said in, the, uh, in um, episode one, when we first talked about Afghanistan, right, you, you have the last war in mind. We had what we knew Iraq. We, you know, it looked like it smelled like it tastes like Iraq, right? You could look at everything and go, but it wasn't Iraq. That the U.S. left. It was a whole different. Nation. There was no sofa. We have no infrastructure. We had no logistics support. We have no people on the ground. We have, you know, what I mean, there, were, all that was. You know, as I explained to, you know, some of you in the, uh, you know, in the halls, we've had this conversation before, you know, it was kind of like zombie land or the walking dead, you know, when we landed, you know, C-130s and C-17s were landing and we were pulling off aircraft. We were walking the buildings that got, were closed in 12 and 14 and hadn't been opened up since, had been stripped of everything that was useful, but computer monitors were still on, but the databases were gone. So there's still power going to things with dust covering, you know, everything as we walk into the ground. So there was an interesting... I guess you know from a from a what does the United States do the decision making model of looking in that it's, it's interesting on the institution side of what we know and what we think we know, which is Iraq because we've been there for so long, and this new enemy known as ISIS, and how do we insert ourselves into that into that dynamic? Um, what I know it's slightly different than where Pat and you know where um where the rest of the you know this team has been going with the, the more political aspect um but i think it's something to look at there is the institu- institutional
0: domain well let me let me throw this one back you because what you just said sparked the thought we talk there's institution yes but there's also the decision for war and this strikes me as it really is an interesting contrast to our discussion from the other day about afghanistan where you know we had made the decision to leave forces come surging in we're like, no, nope, humanitarian evacuation, we're getting the heck out. And that went like it did. In this situation, it's a contrast because here comes ISIS surging to the gates of Baghdad. And you're talking about, oh, well, we're thinking of doing uh, an evacuation. But then all of a sudden, somewhere the scales get tipped from no political will to, no, we've got to do, what is it, Operation Castle Keep, defend Baghdad, uh, help out the Iraqis. Be-. So, so what do you think tipped the scales on that? Would it follow on? like?
3: You know, I, I sat in a lot of meetings. I, d- I don't know what tipped the scale between Sencom and r and then whatever they have with the political leadership. I, I believe that there is, you know, a desire to, you know, we we built, you know, the government of Iraq. Again, I don't know what official requests came in for help, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know where that sits. But I think there was a, you know, I mean, Kuwait is designed to be a strategic reserve, although it never been activated until this time. And that's the point of why you know why elements are down in that area of training when people say why are we in Kuwait today where well, there is in a, in the region for a strategic reserve and so in this in this point that look like a, the nation of Iraq um you know potentially the government could fall due to this new enemy known as, as isil and you know so while there was a desire to protect and possibly exfil you know the embassy and the US personnel that were there uh, my understanding was, you know, the the ambassador and team wanted to stay, you know, and so it was a how do we support the government that's there and protect what has been established because I mean they 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 were a surviving government. We can say you can say what you want for how they're operating, right? That's that's their call, but they are they you know they've been established, they've been voted in, they have their constitution, they are a functional government in Iraq, and so it's a matter of how can we help protect that. And so it was we need to protect you with personnel, which is we need to send firepower. And we needed to then be able to help protect the government. And we were on a very tight leash. It wasn't free rent. Again, back to the support. We were, we were, we were held into a very tight perimeter of maintaining um, maintaining protection in that area. And so it was a, you know, it wasn't, we weren't roaming Iraq looking for ISIL or ISIS elements. It was, you know, it was a, you know, defense of self if needed, but it was also a protection of the embassy as needed. And, they, you know, yeah. and then what, and removal of whatever State Department elements are there um, in the on the ground, so that's you know that's kind of the footprint as to, I believe why we launched in. Um, you know, I don't have all the you know the discussions by all the leadership, so I'm, I don't have the final say on why they did that. But it definitely went from a can we get you know Air Force and lift personnel if we need to, can, to can we get heavy rotary wing, to can we get Marine rotary wing with Osprey type aspect because they were also in the in the Gulf, um, in those two discussions, and then it turned into no we're going to push in and it's going to be attack airframes. I mean, so that was an interesting, it was very interesting to see those, uh, those escalation. Yeah, yeah, that, well, the escalation and or the, the priority of protection, right? I mean, because hmm. protection of people is escorting them out, but it was a, those, those dimes turning or those decision matrix click into places and to the final decision of within 12 hours, we're going to have you know a you know a, a bunch of aircraft with attack capability on the ground back at baghdad international they're not special forces because again we, we were we were a conventional organization so but, okay thank you
0: uh pat let's go to you next to this one
1: so john michael right like i i appreciate like the perspective right of the strategic withdrawal in 2011 of iraq right and I've heard the war stories too of like computer screens on and opening the fridge and seeing like the salsa that Mike or Pat or John left, you know, like at whatever fob, right? And 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 that's pretty cool, right? Your name was still on it, by the way. Yes. Yeah, I saw your name on yeah, it. yeah. You know, okay. And maybe maybe you found some mail for me, you know. Um, but let's 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 peel on this, right? The decision for war. Did the United States actually make a decision for war or did we actually decide to enable partners that were conducive to our political objectives, maybe from a degree of guilt or from a degree of, we have to do this because the conditions were created due to our actions. I don't know. Right. I mean, you know, Mike, John, you, You know i we we all have the perspective from a tactical and operational perspective you know uh from our own biases and our own experiences but peeling that back the decision for war did we actually go to war well congress
0: declares (laughs) war so no but when i to commit troops let's say decision to commit troops
1: but did we apply skill sets capabilities um platforms that our partners did not have, you know, to to, uh, achieve both a military and a political objective, right? Depending on who you talk to today, right? ISIS is done. You know, that chapter is closed. Depending to another person, depending on what side of the border you reside on inside uh, the Middle East, right? Like ISIS is still very much there and presents a degree of a threat. My bounded my bounded perspective shows that the isis chapter has been contained at least from a national security threat to the united states but did we did we actually accomplish our political objectives did our partner forces and and, you know did we win a better peace you know all said and done which is you know one of the questions that i i continue to wrestle with because not only from 2004, you know, I am I am actively questioning myself as I continue to study this. Right, like when did this start and when does this end, and how does it how does it end? So I'll punt that to you know to uh, to the panel here, but I think it's wor- it's a worthwhile question of at least asking ourselves as practitioners and scholars. And
3: you
0: know, that answer is spoken like a true psyops officer as well. Too. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it, it, Pat, you know, to your comment about did we achieve a better peace, I mean, I think, right, it, you know, it, it just, bloody hell, it always depends on from what, from what position you want to look at, right? So, you know, to Barack's statement of, you know, when we decided that we were going to remove the bath regime um, from position, his analogy, I, mean, I think, of, of a foundation in a building is phenomenal. I mean, you know, again, it wasn't a virus. The body didn't heal itself. We pulled out the foundation, the building collapsed. That may not have been what we thought we were gonna do, but that's what we did. So from there, a better peace is not achieved. We then spent years, blood, treasure, international lives, uh, credibility. We spent a whole bunch of effort to to reestablish a better peace inside Iraq, I think. Um, you know, for, for whatever reasons, for however long, and whether we should have stopped sooner or later, I think we did our best to try to establish a better peace upon departure. And upon departure, a better peace to some degree had been reestablished prior to invasion. Now, with, you know, what, why did we then move in again? I think you're right. I think there is a, did a better peace exist than following ISIS? I think the answer is yes. Whether we went in for guilt or not, I, you know, again, I, I, that I, I can't speak to, but the, but the idea that like watching the operators on the ground help assist planning and see the Iraqi, as as we've talked about, see the Iraqi military move through inner Baghdad to make, to secure it and then slowly start to push out to see them fight ISIL, not US forces fighting ISIL, right? This wasn't the, hey, we got the fight you can be our partner element and come in with us. To see Iraqi military stand and Iraqi security forces stand ground and push back, I think that nation has a better sense of peace. That nation is now supporting itself, right? Because the idea was Iraq was gonna collapse, right? That was the, I mean, that's why there was a possibility to remove US personnel for the fear of the nation falling apart, and it didn't. It paused, it stopped, it got its feet together. And with US assistance, air power, which we provided, you know, um, you know, with eventually some ground support with other things, whether it was Intel planning, other things, as we knew it grew into another operation, our uh, operation Inherent Resolve. Um, I think that there was, I think a better piece is growing out of it. I don't know that it is the best piece and I don't know that it's the piece that people want to see, but I think it is a better piece than it could be, I guess. And that's, I mean, you know, that's, I don't know that's a good answer
0: I'll add one reinforcing fires to that, Mike. The Iraqi army that I saw in 2007 and the Iraqi army that I saw in 2017—that was literally going house to house, room by room, clearing ISIL out of Mosul and you know uh, the the uh, Al qaim village of those towns. Night and day difference. So, I, and not that's the military instrument isn't always the the best indicator of a better peace per se. Sure but it is one data point.
3: Well, from the data point of the military is standing on its own, yeah. conducting its own operations. Yes, we may be supporting with air or other things, but again, that's, that's what a nation such as the U.S. can do, right? we can provide advantages to partners, whether it's politically, whether it's regionally, you know, we can provide things such as intel, air power, Navy, naval power. We can, we can provide aspects to governments that, that are lacking those capabilities to give them advantages to put down an enemy or put down something that is potentially eroding their nation. And I think that is something that we we have the ability to do. And I think we've showed it there with ISIS. We didn't have to send in the, you know, 250,000 ground troops, right? Along with, you know, 250,000 contractors to make this happen, right? We were able to do it with, with, with I mean, in the scale, minor deployments, you know, minor involvement. So um,
0: that's my... You- yeah, thank you, Mike. Pat, did you want to have a quick comeback? But I know we need to get Barack in the conversation here. But
1: no, and I, I would appreciate Barack's okay. perspective on this, right? Like, were there clearly defined for the prosecution of ISIL, clearly defined political aims for the United States and its partner forces, right? And and maybe we could even touch on like a policy strategy match on that, right? Because it's while it's interlinked to the other aspects of the global war on terror, there are certain lessons that can be pulled from the ISIL prosecution aspect about potentially a policy strategy match, the application of skills, uh, capabilities, and assets
2: to achieve uh, your end state. So, you know, my answer is, so I'll have two, you know, issues to, Talk about the first one comes to better peace, better state of peace, From even if it's only from our perspective. I think 2003 comparisons are you know, open to debate. They're just too complicated. But I think when it comes to 2014 onwards, I would say United States was able to achieve its primary policy objective. Because here's what I mean. So from the red team side, what made ISIS that dangerous was not necessarily their ideology per se. It was a part of it but it was the fact that they controlled territory. They were running a proto-state, and they called themselves a caliphate. So as long as that existed, as long as they could rule some territory, especially in like two, two major Arab countries in the Middle East, as long as they did that, they would still continue to inspire and attract followers not only followers who would just go to syria and they were not only inviting fighters they were inviting nurses lawyers architects. they were literally trying to create full territory control and as long as that territory remained in their hands some territory they could still inspire and attract so in that sense i think united states from 2014 late 2014 maybe early 2015 till like 2019 accomplished the task of taking the territory away from ISIS and just kicking them out of whatever they hide outs So we may not be able to defeat the ideology, but the territory has been taken away from them. So that's that that I think is a success. But tying that to you know Pat and Mike's comments, it was not it, this task was accomplished not through a you know big footprint on the part of the United States. It was carried out through proxy forces. Uh, different from 2003, 2009 episode, like the South Wild Awakening. So it was not a combination of a lot of U.S. troops and Black Sunni tribes. It was mostly done through proxy forces or local forces or indigenous forces. And there's no such thing as free lunch. So if you do it yourself, you can do it your way. You will accept the cost. You will da-da-da. But if you do it through proxies, even though you will pay, you will not be paying a lot of costs in some dimensions, Not much troop presence, but at the same time, there will be other kinds of costs. I think that's eventually what we're facing right now. So, on average, I think it's a a great thing that ISIS no longer claims territory. But at the same time, especially in Syria, the fact that the United States operated through the YPG, two side effects that we have to deal with. First, Turkish-American relations. That is the main obstacle. That that is the lack of. One thing that would not that's going to go away, and the YPG or PYD, the you know, Syrian Kurdish militant groups or political groups, they will be dependent on US support for the foreseeable future because the moment that the United States, you know, f- takes out the umbrella, that is like one day before, or maybe like six hours before Turkish forces are marching into northern Syria and take out YPG, PYD, whatever we call it. But again, if you look at the primary objective, taking territory away from ISIS, that was done, and that was done in the short term with a minimum cost, but at, the, at least the cost could have been, would have been much higher if there were more U.S. troops directly involved there, in addition to special operations forces and intelligence, what have you. Go, going back to 2014, Iraq decision forward, That was a the second theme that was running. Just very, very briefly, so what... Put the United States have done after 2014, summer of 2014, after Mosul is taken over by ISIS, I think there were not that many options. But one thing we can do, as students of strategy, is trying to derive lessons from what happened. And one lesson that I can recommend is to well keep our radars open and active, because we can talk about Mosul as an operation that took a couple of days. It wasn't the case that the ISIS Worked on Mosul for up to two years. It was a massive infiltration, uh, say subordination campaign. And the one person I got that insight uh, is from my good friend uh, Craig Whiteside. He's a professor at Naval War College in Monterey, and he also spent at least two, maybe three tours in Afghanistan as an army officer. So. Craig wrote his dissertation in 2009 and as early as 2009 he was warning about what was going to happen in Iraq but he was he was one of the few but not that few that there were people who saw what was happening what could be done to prevent it what could have been done so that you never have Mosul 2014 because you you capture you your radar captures what ISIS was trying to do in 2012 and before the problem fasters and becomes a huge problem, you take care of it. That was what Craig's research and his experience as an army officer, a combatant, a combatant army officer, just showed him. And I think that's the lesson we may drive from all of this. Okay, something, some things were good, some things were mistakes, but what can we drive from the episode? And I think the lesson to drive from 2014 Uraki uh, episode is, well... Just keep our radars open. We should not think that something is not showing up on our radar. It's not making the news that the problem doesn't exist. You know, more attention to local intelligence, local regional intelligence, you know, maybe more attention to what they've been doing. Hmm. And one good thing that uh, United States and its allies learned from the episodes of, say, prisons like Kambuka, is the, the, the very first thing ISIS or Baghdadi did in 2010, 11, 12 period, they just busted those prisons open and they just got their fighters back. And they tried to do the same thing last year and the year before that, but they could not achieve the same level of success because the local actors, intelligence officers, they knew that something like that could have happened. So I think that, that would be the lesson. Let's not get to a point where ISIS comes back online somewhere and is at the Musul stage. If you pay attention to the problem, not like if you don't, if you obsess with the problem, we're going to make problems of our own. But if we do not underestimate the problem, we will be able to, with our experience and the lessons we draw, drive from the actual cases we'll have to live through, we can arrest the development of ISIS so that it doesn't become a proto-state insurgency problem. It remains as a terrorist problem, terrorism problem. They they will They probably will not go away entirely because there's a certain ideology and the promise of a promised land that ISIS established for about four or five years. It's not going to go away. But, you know, obsessing or blowing it out of proportions is not the best strategy, but at the same time, ignoring it also is not the best strategy. And there are many lessons we can draw. lots of expertise to draw upon. I think one thing we have to do is apply those lessons to the future so that we don't have Musul 2014 again. Fair enough. Go ahead, Mike.
3: Hey, okay. Brock, well, can I... It's not a pushback, but it's kind of a, I'm trying to figure out how to how to phrase this. You know, I understand the second and tertiary effects that you've mentioned that, you know, with, with siding with YPK um, or PPK. Um, but the question is, is with that and kind of like the, you know, indications that we had in 2009 that led to 2014 and we weren't, you know, putting up those being more aware and assertive and not having our blinders on. I agree with you, it's a fine line to walk, right? Because you can't obsess on one side because otherwise you get run into you know decision paralysis and, and you're always focused on chaos. And the other side you can't ignore. But do we have indications that those things actually that there was ignoring that took place? Because I mean I I have a hard time thinking the US wasn't aware. Let's go to the Turkey side, right? I, I have a hard time thinking the US wasn't aware of the friction of the Syrian Kurds and what was going on there. So while none of us are in the were in the room. You know, uh, to you know, to know why the decision was made to support that. I understand how that gave us a military advantage in Syria, but to say, but to think that we didn't know that that was going to, you know, frustrate or completely alienate Turkey. Um, you know, it, it almost, you know, it almost seems, like, you know, I would think that we have people that understand that situation that would be briefing uh-huh. the leadership. And it was a choice, right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, and sure, then yeah. one more. Just the same with ISIS, right? We were, I think we were aware that ISIS was there. And then we were aware, and I guess the the question always becomes, right? Unless unless Iraq put their hand up and said, we want you to do something. I know we've done drone strikes in other countries and other stuff, but you know, we couldn't exactly just go in and dismantle ISIS on our own inside Iraq, sovereign, because that was one of the issues we had going in. When we went in as a conventional force, not special forces, it was like, there was no SOFA agreement. There was no protection of us on the ground like we had before. It was, the question was, hey, if you do something, we're going to have to figure out how the legality of these actions take place because we were we were moving in at the behest of Iraq, but also at the behest of the United States, and we were convention the conventional side, not the special operations side. So I don't know where do you where does that line go, or do you? I mean, do, I don't think we do. We is it? Do you have evidence, or do you believe that we ignored ISIS, or that, or was it just a choice that we chose them not to be a significant enter, actor, and yet they just caught us off
2: guard? I mean, I, like. So for example, so in terms of, let me start with ISIS, in terms of ISIS, even the first thing that Pat mentioned about ISIS, that was missed for a long time. So when ISIS became global sensation, it was projected, and I was talking to people actually in it, right? So my position as an academic in Naval War College is a unique position because it's not like i'm only in my ivory t- tower just thinking thinking very clever thoughts i especially that since that issue was very hot and i was someone who was working on it you know partially from the region so i was talking to people like some important people some people who were in the know which i can't disclose but the, the issue issues isis in 2014 2015 and people like craig whiteside or myself we were trying to shout our lungs out ISIS is not a new thing. Yeah. By branding ISIS as a new thing, they just exploded in 2014. We're missing the entire train of thought because ISIS, leading, in the period between 2010 and 14, learned from the experiences from 2006, 2009, the awakening mm-hmm. and uh, the surge, and they did their best to make sure that they get the upper hand if United States comes back to the region directly or indirectly. For example, one question that a lot of people asked during the initial stages of the ISIS crisis in 2014, 15, people said, oh, why don't the Sunni tribes do what they did like say five, six years ago? And why don't the Sunni tribes, why don't we convince the Sunni tribes to join us to undermine ISIS in Iraq? I'll tell you why because ISIS figured that out and between 2006 and 2013-14 they targeted the members of the Sunni traps who were parts of the Sunni awakening right. and they publicized this they've not, nothing big they did not kill a thousand people in one single attack assassination you know small bombs and so when ISIS eventually pushed the button and took over Mosul there were not that many Sunni forces Sunni tribes to stand up to them because they understood that. It, last time they stood up to an ISIS, version one or version two, whatever you have recalled, they found them and they killed them in front of their families. Yeah. Right? And, and with, with the same logic, ISIS figured certain things out. They figured out the prison system was the main weakness. And the the time that ISIS you know, went for the operation, like breaking out of the prison, right? Once once they went up to prison, we're talking about 2012, 2013, not 2014. So the, when I say we were not paying enough attention, these are the points that I'm trying to highlight. They were trying to break out their you know, fighters. They were trying to silence the Sunni tribes or scare the Sunni tribes into submission so that they don't have to suffer another Sunni awakening because there is no Sunni awakening. There were no one to stand up because ISIS spent like five to six years scaring the Sunni tribes. Right? They also did the same thing with targeting Iraqi and Syrian security forces. They made like a series of like video shows or, you know, like clanging off the source. They had like four videos where they just come up with the camera, ambush, sometimes in their homes, Iraqi and Syrian security forces, and butcher them. Yeah. Like literally, say, uh, torture porn or some sort. And they put them online. And then we think, why did the second biggest army in Iraq, Mosul, population of 1.5 million, protected by Iraqi security forces, which state of the art, they ran packing, right? They just, ran. they dissolved, facing what? 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 uh, ISIS fighters heavily armed with slippers and AK-47s and pick up trucks, right? The reason was not, the reason they fled, they dissolved, was not necessarily only about, they were scared about the military power. They were scared of them because ISIS worked on them, scaring the Iraqi security forces, and Syrian security forces, and Sunni tribes for years. I mean, the, the, the friend of mine, whom I mentioned, Craig Whiteside, has even data sets on what they were doing, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, 13, but we started to have this ISIS problem as if ISIS was born in 2014. So we invented a new challenge, even though it was a continuation of the same challenge, same principles, same ideology, even a lineage of leadership. So I think that I think is my answer when it comes to ISIS. There were signs, I think it's sort of expectable for those signs to be ignored because we never thought about something like ISIS before. We never saw something like that. If someone asked me in 2004, oh, by the way, Barack, in about 10 years, and there will be a Salafi Jihadi group who will control a real estate larger than Britain at some point in Iraq and Syria at the time two functioning English nation states. And they will call themselves the caliphate. My response would be like this. Whatever you've been smoking, go easy on that. You're going to try that brain of yours. It was unimaginable at the time. So I think there's I think there's a reason why maybe united states did not pay that much attention to what was happening between especially 2010 and 14 but one thing we can learn from this as opposed to bashing ourselves or did bad what can we do better next time and my point is obsessing with groups like isis only helps them and doesn't help us but also ignoring some of the signals that we already seen before also doesn't help us and when it comes to turkey the first question was what turkey my experience from the people that i've talked to because if anyone is going to write a master's thesis or you know advanced strategic program kind of paper on the region they, they eventually end up with me so my circulation when it comes to talking to people from different you know communities is just even today happening i can tell that from what i've heard from people who are on the ground they understood it was not like they weren't fooling themselves they understood that siding with the ypg would create problems with turkey they misunderstood the extent of the problem between turkey and the YPG. they they thought they could manage it but, okay so but but if jump into a time machine go to late nineteen four 2014. the united states did not have much of an option right what, what could nazis do if you want to take territory out of isis hands in syria what are you going to do? You can't work with Assad. That's out of question. Russia, Russia is not there yet. They come like 2015, September or October. And Turkey is not willing unless you decide to launch a you know, new commercial campaign to take out Assad regime. And other local forces are not trustable. And we had this story of this, you know, intelligence CIA operation that equipped a lot of Syrian opposition members. And all that money was burned. We don't even want to talk about that. So the only option if you want to take territory out of isis in syria in northern syria was the ypg right so i'm not saying people misunderstood that and they just they didn't get it they got it first they probably thought they could manage that even though it's a primary a basic issue for turkey but besides that point i don't think united states had much of an option yeah other than going all, all by itself. So you you land your forces in large numbers in Syria, right? Yeah. In, that's a sovereign country on paper. Or you use local forces because there's nothing else to do. And if you let this pastor, as long as ISIS controls territory, so it's gonna attract and inspire. So my point was not about, it was a mistake. I think that was the only viable solution as of 2014, 2015. But what I'm trying to say is there's no such thing as free lunch. So you don't do it yourself. you do it through a proxy, you become embedded with proxy's problems and you, anyone who has a problem with the proxy will have a problem with you. But what I'm not saying this was a mistake. I'm, I'm just saying even though there was not much U.S presence in Syria, there are still some costs, but given the circumstances, I think that was the most viable option because the United States did not have much of an option other than taking territory out of ISIS. You either do it by yourself, which means injecting tens of thousands of troops into a sovereign country that you're not at war with in Syria or use local actors. Does it make sense?
3: No, I, like I said that's, you know, we, we that's what we grapple with in class. Right. As, as you know, with the students, it's the making the best decision with the information that you have. And if the and if and as you said, the, the failure, if there was one, maybe the the impression that we could manage that the U.S. could manage the relationship by making that decision. Right. You know what I mean? And so and if that's the only decision you have clear enough and, you know, sure, that 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 makes perfect sense. Right. Because we don't want to commit massive forces on ground. So we chose to go with proxy by doing that. The repercussion is now we have friction with another state. If we think we can manage that, that seems to be more the error. We thought we could manage that better than it was necessarily the choice to do it, because that was, you know, it was either that or commit forces. And we weren't going to go. We weren't going to commit forces again um, to that degree. So no, I, I mean, those are yeah difficult, difficult things to have. And that's, those are the layers that, right. That are important to get out with the students, especially right. Having them start to think those, the second and third order, it's not the initial decision was always easy. Right. And we look at history, you go, God, that, that decision made no sense. That was a horrible decision to make. And you go, yes, but through the lens of time, they didn't know that, right. They send forces in, don't send forces in and use proxy. These are the two choices I have. This is going to frustrate this. This, I have nothing else to do. The U.S. population will not support us sending massive ground forces in. I guess we're going to support through a proxy. Can we handle it with Turkey? Sure, we can We can manage that. And so maybe you're right. Maybe we need to spend more effort on the managing with Turkey than we did. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I see. Yeah. That, is, that is my point. And
2: on the mismanagement side, so one thing that the United States did to manage the situation, which only made things worse, which is why I think the... There was an optimism on the part of the United States decision makers, military or civilian, to manage Turkey. One thing that the United States did openly, and that literally drove a lot of Turks and the Turkish government crazy, the United States suggested that the YPG and People's Protection Units in in Kurdish why don't we brand them as SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces? <laughs> but having more Arabs joining SDF, but leading the YPG leadership in place, hoping that Turks, Turkish government and Turks would look at them and say, oh, it's not the YPG, so it can't be the PKK. So it's something else, the SDF, something new. Oh, bet. I think that was the assumption, but I can't overemphasize what kind of an uh, insult that looked like to well, the Turkish and, and government and the Turkish people,
0: Barack? If I could interject too, it didn't help that when when they liberated Raqqa, the flags yeah. they put up didn't say SDF; they said YPG. The yellow and red, you know, banners. And I mean, right. they, they,
2: no put, they put the, they put a they put a picture as a flag. They put a the picture of the founder of yeah. the PKK, Abdullah Öcalan, who's you right. know in, in a prison I mean, in Turkey yeah. since 1999. So yeah. it's like. Oh my God! And Raqqa is not even like a Kurdish majority city, so Sunni Arab majority city. So those kind of signals for the Turkish government and the Turkish people. Like they oh have, my God!
3: So I, mean I, will say, I will say I will say this brand recognition. That's what we need. Yeah. We need yeah, that's training. right.
0: That's I will thing. say this in terms of managing, um, trying to manage Turkey. There were, and it wasn't in 2014. I was there in, in 2017 2018. But when the um, when the Turkish army invaded Idlib, Syria. Uh, which is a majority uh, Kurdish area. Afrin or Idlib? It was, it was, it was, it's in the northern, no, northwest, that, that's uh, Afrin. Yes, no, no, yes, northwest, because uh, Idlib is still or, like, uh, maybe it is I'm sorry, maybe it is Afrin, you're right. Anyway, they invaded that part of Syria. This is in, um, what, late uh, 2017, early yeah. 18 timeframe. Um it was almost campaign failure for us because literally, uh, that's where General Maslum, the Turkish uh, uh, general in charge, was was from, as well as uh, most of his fighters in the army. Um, they basically, they you know, they were pushing ISIS to the to the Euphrates, and they almost we almost had them beaten. And then all of the you know Syrian Democratic Forces, the, the Kurds, Syrian Kurds, wanted to go back to to fight the um, you know the, the Turks in the. Uh, up in Italy, there. So, uh, or or Af- Afrin. But um, yeah, that was interesting. We were asking the National Command Authority, "What do you want us to do here? What what is?" And not only did the the National Command Authority, of which, by the way, General Secretary Mattis was the, was a sect at the time, didn't come out and do anything. They actually came out and supported the Turks because Mattis made a statement that says that Turkey has some legitimate security concerns. That was all. It was, and it was literally. It was almost came campaign failure for OIR. But so we, <laughs> we definitely kind of placated the the Turks yeah. in that one. I'm not saying it. It you know maybe it was the bandaid on the broken arm, but that was that was kind of shocking for us. Um, it being in theater at the time. Uh, but it, it states where our priorities, you know, or I guess the delicate game, the complex game we were we were playing. But yeah, go ahead, Pat.
1: So, you know, th- this is great, great discussion, right? I mean, we've got practitioners, we've got academics, we've got scholarly perspectives, right? And, and I think this highlights, like, some of the concepts that we try to uh, at least tease out here at the uh, U.S. Navy War College that may be even unique just to our institution, right? Like, this This reminds me of the boxes of war in a nature of war discussion. Do we understand you know, the local, regional, and global perspective, you know, in regards to this specific case study, right, our political aims from the United States perspective may not have married up to the Turkish or the Iraqi or even the Syrian uh, perspectives, right? The Syrians were fighting a degree of um, insurrection themselves, and they sought out a partner force as well. But, you know, w- we have solved nothing here today, right, Am- amongst the, the, the four of us, right? But we have demonstrated that we are still searching for a degree of understanding, not even explanation of understanding, because this chapter in American military history and uh, political prosecution of military objectives has yet to be, resolved. And I I think that this is, this is fascinating, you know, from a, um, a a standpoint that uh, what is very, very unique to our institution of how we can collaborate and how we can discuss and, uh, agree and disagree at the same time. So, um, I've learned a lot today, John, right? I have learned a lot of perspectives that, uh, without this podcast, Barack and I would not have engaged with uh, from your perspective later on in the conflict um, shows me like kind of like the middle of conflict guy, like what was I doing and what was I hoping to, to achieve mm. that being said, right? Like I look forward to a continued discussion, uh, even at a later podcast. Okay. But even just over a meal, between us and, and our, uh, our colleagues as well to, um, to have these discussions. So, um, I put it back to you, but I'll close with, we don't have the answers. We're still in the exploration of this and trying to figure out, um, you know, overall what was achieved, what wasn't achieved, how could we do better? And ultimately, um didn't lead to a better state of peace at least that's what i'm looking at it from 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 my perspective so, i'll i'll thanks. close yeah
0: thank you Pat. I'll, I'll close with uh, i'll ask this this quick two-part question and i know we're getting we've, got, we've gone 90 minutes here but it's been fun so a two-part question is is what what do we take away from this what do we do better next time to prevent isis from rising and the first part of the question is how did isis was it, was it just this historical confluence of events that allowed ISIS to become what it did? Because this is not the first jihadi group, heck, they're not the, even the first people to cut off heads, right? I mean, I remember watching uh, Chechens do this to a Russian soldier in 1998, when I was newly commissioned uh, and it was online. So they're not the first people to publicize this, but they, but they brand it, they package it, they sell it, they, they make jihadism cool in such a way that people wanna join. They're able to take over territory, is that just because of Syrian civil war, a good insurgency, you know, phase one, two, three Maoist tactics? Is it just a confluence of events that allowed him to rise? And how do we prevent something like this from happening in the future? Uh, Mike, let's start with you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. And, uh, So I'm not going to answer any of those questions because uh, it's my time to talk and I'm going to do what I want. No, I I don't know that I have the academic background or the political understanding to truly make that statement uh, or to answer your question. My observation, again, of the the 2014 movement and what I understand there is is the analogy that what Pat, Pat has made in the past we talk about is that we fight the last war that we know. And my experience moving into this conflict with ISIS was it was a different enemy, it was a different dynamic, it was a different, different political structure, but everyone was functioning because it was a similar location. It was the ground we'd walked on before. It is something we it was very comfortable to us to, to say we're back in Iraq. Um, that everyone was it was looking, smelling, tasting, feeling like Iraq, but it was not OIF. It was not Operation During Freedom. It was not New Dawn. It was not something else. So my thing, my takeaway from this for everybody moving out there is, is you know, we always say that as you know, you got to approach the the war and try to, you know, try to think about it differently. As you you got, we've got to engage that system two thinking. We yes, we're practitioners. We've been doing things for years. We do have the gut reaction of our our instincts of what we do and where our training has taught us and what our experience has brought us. But we need to put that aside and we need to be able to put it down and say. What is different about this and and how does that affect whether me at the tactical operational or strategic what doesn't what is not what is different about this that potentially needs us to think differently and that that, that was Mike because again for the six months i was there i'm like this is everyone's function was well we'll just do this and you're like we can't we don't have this system we don't have the people we don't have the infrastructure we don't have the not possible and that's all the way down to from what my experience at our sense all the way up to us operating independently is as a, as a, you know, CJTF up there with, you know, special operations in the lead until we were able to get a division headquarters and Arsene can go back down and do his stuff. So I as much as I'd like to ask you, answer your question directly, I don't have an answer for that. Sure. Um, but again, to the point, I'm just going to hammer home. You got to take each new fight, even though it looks a little there, we got to look at it differently. We can't just fall into the traps of this is how I do business. Okay. Fair enough.
1: Pat. So, I, you know, I would encourage anybody that's listening and our students to look at this episode of the global war on terror as an example of a policy strategy match. Okay. Uh, and from why, right? So I, ha- I have some biases and, and it's all informed from like the previous uh, excursions episodes in Iraq in Afghanistan, but we applied selected military power in support of a partner force that was capable of achieving commensurate and mutual objectives, you know, to beat back a proto state that was enabled by radical Islamic extremism. So I'm looking for the success stories in this case study, maybe as a coda to the global war on terror, which I actually don't think has concluded. But as opposed to our previous episodes and our political missteps, I do think that we apply the appropriate capabilities at the appropriate time to, um, you know, to uh, satisfy what we were seeking to achieve, right? Or at least contain. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good things that could be at least extrapolated from this, right? Even from the, you know, the, the August body of individuals that we have here, right? You have Mike at the beginning, me in the middle, you at the end, Barack with a, a regional uh, and global perspective. Okay. But I also think that, you know, my, my last call is that don't separate the academic perspective from the practitioner perspective, right? Like if you want to make informed decisions, you have to have an appreciation for the depth of the uh, the challenge that you are facing, right? And um, as, as a result, right, we need individuals like Barack and other uh, individuals inside our professional military education venues to give us perspectives to help us make better informed decisions in the
2: future. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Pat. Barack, we'll end with you. So, you know, if I get the questions right, can this happen or was this a special event or can we see another repeat of this event and what can be done or if anything about further resurgence of ISIS? I mean, here's what i say. Everything that we do in the strategy and policy department boils down to, especially with previous cases, lessons to be drawn. I think this is a very important element, so lessons to be drawn. I think going back to, you know, Michael's point, I think we cannot derive, we should not derive direct lessons from previous cases and apply them directly to present and future challenges. Because something that, especially John, has seen me do over and over again in my lectures on the region, on global Oklahoma, I'll say three words, context, context, context. So I think when we... If we're trying to drive a lesson from a previous case or something that we went through just recently. We may want to consider the contextual elements so that we can figure out what portions of those lessons can be applied to new problems and challenges where the context will be different. But so that is my overall suggestion, overall idea about this. And I'll just repeat what I said, I think, because it speaks to the question respect to the dichotomy between especially when it comes to something like isis or you know underestimating it ignoring the signals that we already you know seen that could lead to something bigger and worse that would be a mistake but at the same time spoiler alert i'm speaking to my lectures next week if we you know if we blow this up out of proportions if you think of isis problem as uh, let's say a thousand-year struggle between the Islamic civilization and what... That kind of stuff only helps the enemy, and it doesn't help us think clearly, right? So I think when we're applying lessons from the past to our present and future challenges, we have to operate in the middle grounds and to, to get to understand where we are, where we should be in the middle ground, we have to pay attention to context. So there might be a... ISIS version four or five in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe in Indonesia. We don't know, right? Or in Afghanistan somehow, or maybe back in the Levant or the Middle East. But when it does, when we have a question like that, we should be able to figure out the signals leading to that outcome. And when it comes to the solutions, we, we cannot apply whatever worked or didn't work in previous cases directed to other geographies and time periods. We cannot say, hey, this worked out in Syria, or this didn't work out in Syria, so let's not do this, or let's do this in Sub-Saharan Africa or you know South Asia. So the context will be different, and we have to take into account that every single time, there will be some lessons that we can draw and apply, but if we say, if you think that the lessons drawn from a certain context directly is applicable to other contexts, we will only be shooting ourselves in the food. Right. So I think a balanced approach where we don't ignore problems so they faster and become very big problems or where we just don't blow the problem out of proportions so we can be become obsessed with it. So I think a middle ground might be the better way because if you're obsessed with one problem, then you may miss out on other problems that are rising at the same time. Awesome. And, oh, no, go ahead, please. I was gonna thank John and Mike and, and Pat for a very, very say fruitful discussion at least on my end. and I'm speaking as someone who's been speaking since like ten fifteen. Right. normally, normally, and I'm being super honest about this. normally, I would say from the you know private message john, i'm I'm just yeah. fading out. just, just let' us finish this, but I feel bad now wrapping up the conversation because I think it was, as Pat mentioned, it was a very fruitful and lively discussion. And thank you all for that.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Brock. Yeah, that, it was, uh, it was, li- I'm sorry to everyone who listening. We went long today, long, but it was a interesting and entertaining podcast. I, uh, I get a lot out of it being, having been a veteran of this campaign. So uh find it fascinating. All right. That's all we have time for. Thank you, gentlemen, for your insights and observations. And we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you.